This is a Thinkers 50 podcast, brought to you in partnership with the Brightline Initiative, bridging the gap between strategy design and delivery. Hello, I'm Stuart Craner, and this is a Thinkers 50 podcast. Today, I'm in conversation with Sheena Iyengar of Columbia Business School, an author of The Art of Choosing. Sheena begins by looking at three strands to her work, The Art of Choosing, a Columbia Business School course, Think Bigger, and a concept she calls the authenticity complex. In The Art of Choosing, I argue that the, ultimately the power of choice doesn't come from your ability to pick. That despite the fact that you're getting all these choices and you feel really excited when you're standing before that sort of proverbial vending machine, and, but your job as a chooser is not just to point and say, I'll have that one. But that's not really where the value of choice comes from. That the value of choice and the power of choice comes from your ability to create. And so essentially, think bigger is that art of using choice to create not a lot of options, but meaningful options. That's how that ends up becoming an applied extension. The authenticity complex takes a less applied approach and becomes more about now capturing the dilemma of choice to the level of the self and how we as human beings living in this modern world faced with technological changes, changes in globalization, changes in number of choices, um, changes in medicine, that these things are actually making us ask the question in a different way, who am I and how do I navigate that? Particularly given that I don't know what's fake or what's real or how I'm supposed to figure that out. So think of it as a, um, whereas uh, Sapiens and Homo Deus is very high level about humans, the authenticity complex is much more on the ground about humans, but it describes you, the individual steward, what, what does that dilemma look like for you? So they are both, in a sense, extensions of the art of choosing. Yeah. I don't yeah. know if, I, if that all made sense. Yeah, no, no, no. It makes sense that... Yeah, I was trying to... I, I was unsure what the link between choice and authenticity was. But I suppose the authenticity debate and initially... Uh, was around kind of Bill George talking about uh, leadership and authenticity, and it seemed a fixed point, authenticity. And now the debate has kind of matured around authenticity, where it's realised that authenticity is a kind of movable feast or a selective feast. Well, think about the advice you're given, given that there's so much choice and you don't know what facts are and what, you know, what's alternative or post-truth, etc., what are you most often given as the advice for how to decide, whether it's a personal decision of whether you should marry X or divorce X or whatever, or whether it's a very important decision like what career to undertake. You're supposed to go figure out how to be, quote, true to yourself. Do you know what that means? Do you know how to know if you're true to yourself? But that's, we ju- you judge yourself by whether you're being true to yourself or by whether somebody else is being true to themselves, by the criteria of authenticity, even though you don't actually know what authenticity is, you can't define it, 
but you're supposed to feel it and you're supposed to trust that feeling of it because that's your most stable criteria in this world where everything is unstable. Do you, do you have a definition of authenticity or is a definition of authenticity pointless? So, I might change my mind by the time the book is done, but right now I would say that the definition is pointless. We should understand why we care about it and how do we actually deal with this this thing that's affecting us. Go back, go back to your the, the, the art of choosing. And yeah. how did you come up on that as a, a subject area? Did you did you choose choice or did choice choose you? What what how how did you get into that? I, I think the answer to that is both. Let me back up a little bit. I think that the most important thing that I try to do with choice, and I would say all roads for me lead to choice, whether we're talking about the art of choosing, the authenticity complex, think bigger, all paths lead to choice because ultimately what I'm trying to do is empower people to choose more meaningfully. Now, in the intro, the prologue of the art of choosing, the way I start that discussion is I tell the story of my life. And so I tell people first the story of my life from the perspective of fate, right? That here I am, born, you know, this kid, and you know, my fate is going to be, you know, what, what, the circumstances of my birth that are going to affect me. Then I describe my life in terms of random events, right? That I, I go blind, my father dies when I'm 13. And then I describe my life in terms of choice. Now what I say, and this I do, and this actually works very well in a speech context, is that I say to people, I said, look, all of us can tell the story of our life in terms of fate, or in terms of chance, or in terms of choice. And however you decide to answer that question, how did the circumstances of my birth get me to where I am? What were those serendipitous events, opportunities, meetings that affected who I am today? And what were those choices that I made? Each answer to each of those three questions will teach you something different about how it is that you came to be who you are. But there's something very meaningful when you tell the story of your life in terms of choice. Because it's only when you tell the story of your life in terms of choice that it gives meaning to everything you say and do. Because in the end, choice is the only one of these forces that puts control in your hands and, and enables you to go from who you are today to whom you want to be tomorrow. And, and that, in a sense, sums up my answer to your question, which is I think it's both. But I think the more important answer is that yes I chose it because I could have vetoed it. So choice gives meaning. Yeah I mean did certain events, did, did the circumstances of your vo uh, life, you know your birth affect you? Yeah sure. I mean there's fate happening to you all the time, there's serendipity happening to you all the time but in the end you choose to accept or reject that is a choice, whether you're conscious of it or not. Isn't the danger that you kind of reverse engineer your life to 
make it uh, appear like choices or make it feel like choices when it wasn't. So why is that dangerous? The most important thing is for you to be aware of what's important and to act on it, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you're supposed to take advantage of whatever it is that came your way. You can only do that. And sometimes you have to look at what you have and understand your both the possibilities and the constraints in order to be able to get the most from choice. Because choice is not just this phenomenal thing out there that's going to solve the problem. We seem to think that all I have to do is give you some choices and suddenly all your woes will go away. At the end of the day, it offers you possibilities and constraints. And it's only as you understand both of those and how they operate that you actually are able to come up with meaningful choices. I loved your research uh, involving Wilkins's uh, jam. Ah, yeah, preserves, uh, which basically concluded uh, people were, were given an array of the very fine Wilkin, Wilkins products. If they were given lots to choose from, in the end they were less likely to buy. If they were given a smaller sample to choose from, then they were more likely to buy. So basically less is more. Yeah, and I use the same principle in Think Bigger. That One of my biggest critiques of brainstorming is that, yes, it feels really good, to have those, you know, 50 ideas generated in 10 minutes. And for the few seconds that you look at those 50 ideas, you're like, oh my God, this is such an accomplishment. But that's where it ends. But it doesn't necessarily lead to a good idea. Yeah, I think we've all been in those brainstorming sessions where whiteboards or flip charts have been filled with ideas and it's fulfilling in, in, in a way, but so you're, you're saying less, Less a more focused brainstorming works, or yeah, or that's essentially what Think Bigger does. Is it gives you a very focused uh, method for generating ideas that are based on solving a problem, um, and it gives you a focused way of, I would say, a more scientific way, of actually finding solutions and then being creative. So I, my my method is a little is different in the sense of where I how I order things. And how does that relate to design thinking? Is it a kind of an alternative design thinking, or yeah, I think so. Although I do think it could work for different method for different goals as well. So I I don't think design thinking works quite as well for solving the the personal existential crisis problem, like figuring out who do I want to be when I grow up. Whereas I think think bigger can. Um, but sure, it's it. Um, Whereas design thinking starts you with a problem, you know, yeah. figure out how to create a new product and blah 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 space or change the way we do our product. It's all, it's not as defined upfront. I first allow you to dream about what problems would you like to solve. I either tell people to dream about the problems they would like to solve or dream about all the things that make you really angry that you wish you could make go away. So that's, that's your only moment I give you to feel good. That's the, that's the feel good factor, is it? That's that the feel good factor. <laughs> and then I tell you, okay, now I'm going to give you a very stringent criteria. Which of these, not only can you find a solution that would impact a billion lives, but that you're the right person to solve it. 
that narrows down that list very fast. So it's it's the identifying the constraints, and it's the search for precedence. Yeah, and it's it, and then creative combination. So it's dream, define problem, identify constraints because your problem has constraints, and great choices come from constraints. So that is obviously something that comes out of my research, that principle. Then search for precedence. So it's a different kind of homework from design thinking, whereas for design thinking, you go out and learn as much about, I don't know, the toothbrush or the shopping cart or the robot that you can. I'm having you go out and do homework about other known solutions all over the map. I don't care where they're from, as long as they were a known solution to your constraint. Because um, I actually think making unexpected connections is going to be a greater key to innovation that way. And so now you have creative combination, and then I have a, and then whereas design thinking has you go out and prototype and market test. I don't disagree with that. I just think that it's actually more useful if you create, whether it be a prototype or a pitch, whatever happens to be the quickest way to exemplify what you're, what you're selling or what your idea is, and go out and actually get feedback from one-on-one -on -one interactions where you're not asking them what they think, etc. You're just looking at how they would say to improve it first, that's how you pivot or edit, and then you simply give people your pitch or your prototype, and again, you don't ask them for feedback, you have them tell you what they remembered, because that tells you what part of it was sticky. So it's a more focused rather than a random process, uh, involves individuals as well as, as groups as well. Yeah, and also when you're pitching, you have to do it in 90 seconds or less. Which is a constraint in itself, isn't it? <laughs> well, because if you can't boil it down to less than three yeah. words, right, like Uber or Airbnb, it's not going to be sticky anyway. And how do people respond in your classes when you're working on this? I mean, so far it's been very successful. It's going out to about 300 students. We, I can only do it 50 people at a time because it is intense. Yeah, yeah, no, I can imagine. So that's why it's 300 is sort of my limit because it's like six classes. Uh, but I, I can easily teach other people to do it, which is one of the things I'm in discussions on when I teach others to also because we need to, to scale it. We're going to have to have more than just me. But that's another principle I have. I'm not into this whole just leaving it as my IP. I, I do want to train people on it. I think it is useful. So yes. cho choice is the kind of platform for, for all of this. Do, do you demarcate between personal and professional choices? Because it always seems to me that the professional choices in a, in a working environment are, are much narrower than the, the personal choices. Or do we so behave think, the same? I think that more and more personal and professional are becoming, you know, blurred because every choice now is supposed to be an expression of self, right? Whether you're choosing a bottle of water or whether you're choosing your career or whether you're choosing your mate. So 
I think more and more the line is blurred. But, but here's where they can be different. The professional choice, usually it's easier to find a way to measure the outcome and to see if you're getting better or worse. Yeah. Personal choices, the only way in which you measure your outcome is how you're feeling. And feelings are rather mercurial and so, or ephemeral. So that's what makes the personal choice harder. What is best practice? Do you encounter people who, uh, who, are, who are good at these things, who really understand them? Because it, it is like choice and decision making is one of those subjects that are kind of perennially mysterious and it's almost like the human condition to be slightly perplexed by them. It's like change, isn't it? Who's comfortable with change? You're supposed to be, but in, in humanity isn't. I think that you do feel, you do find people that are very comfortable in making choices in particular domains. Yeah. Um, I've never, I don't know if I've ever found anybody that felt comfortable with their choices across all domains. But I think that's to be expected, not because choosing is a mystery exactly, but it's effortful. And so what happens is that we don't invest effort in figuring out how to make good choices in every single domain, because we just don't have that bandwidth. And so we kind of let certain things go, and maybe we're not conscious of it. And so there's certain areas where we just inevitably become more inept. Yeah, I know that feeling. The, um, and as tech, what about the, the relationship, obviously, you've explored between technology and and our ability and facility of making choices. And has it made making choices easier or harder? Both. So uh, I actually have a talk on this as well. Um, so I talk about this, the fact that the presence of things like, you know, Alexa or, the, you know, the promise of a Watson and uh, Siri, etc. So what can technology do for us? Well. If you think about choosing, and let's think about it in broad terms, what exactly do we as humans do when we engage in the act of choosing? We do two things. One is what I call picking and finding. And I'm not, obviously I'm using simple terms here rather than getting into you know, all the scientific jargon around it. But we, we're pickers and finders. Which one is the best ice cream to eat? Which one should I pick if I want to maximize on this goal, etc.? The second thing we do as humans is we imagine. We imagine a world that doesn't exist today, and then we try to figure out if there's a way to create it. And so it's when we're able to pair our ability to pick and find with our ability to manage, that's when we are at our most creative. So now let's think about how technology affects both these choosing tasks. Technology essentially reduces the burden placed on us for picking and finding. 
because essentially we created so much information, so much choice, that we as humans can't even manage all the stuff that we've created. And so because we couldn't manage it, we started to create technologies to aid us with dealing with all the stuff that we created. And so the technology becomes an extension of us, such that it's doing more and more of the job of picking and finding. Hey Siri, can you tell me what's the nearest restaurant? Hey Siri, can you help me get to blah 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 location that I have to get to next? Hey Alexa, tell me, you know, whose birthday was or what's going on in the, the game, etc. You see, you see what I'm doing? Go yeah. look up, you're probably a user of all of these technologies, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So it is doing more of the picking and finding, which can improve decision quality. Provided you know how you set it up. Because if you set it up in a way that it's just an extension of you and all the data bits you gave it and the decisions that you gave it are, and there's no variance in it, it will be even more efficient at being biased as you are. And that's a very important thing that most people don't realize when they decide that artificial intelligence and machine learning will outperform humans and will be so much better, etc. Only if you understand the assumptions you've put in and whether you gave it variance. If you don't give it variance in the data, it will simply do an even better job than the humans in being biased. So the, the second thing, which is imagination. I think at incremental levels, you can delegate that out as well to technology. For example, we have a study which uh, looks at art. Mm -hmm. So that you're shown art, and in some cases it's made by human, in some cases it's made by non-human. And it's impressionist paintings. And for example, people are equally just as likely to like paintings made by humans as well as by non-humans. If anything, at times we even get a trend that they might like those stuff made by non-humans a little more. Now that's when they don't know who made it. When they know who made it, they're still just as likely to like it if they, it, whether it was made by a human or a non-human. But what happens is that their overall appraisal of it, of art in general, goes down. But let's put that aside. The most important thing is that non-humans can be trained on how to make the stuff that we deemed as the most human. And, and they can create in some ways more than we can because they don't get tired by each trial. And they are more capable of engaging in random trials than we humans can. So that's where technology can outperform us. It can actually show us more combinations than we, than we might have thought. Where the technology cannot beat us is that we still have the domain of imagination. Ultimately, that non-human has no emotions and has not have the ability to truly imagine. It has the ability to randomly create. It has the ability to reject and accept its creation based on the criteria you specify. 
And you, you were involved with a, a, a firm in artificial intelligence. Oh, yes, yes. It looks at hiring decisions. So hiring, I think, is a domain where it can really be very helpful because, um, for example, we have a study where um, if you, you take, like, you have to have, like, decisions that have been made in the past. Like, it has to be a company that actually has a database of all the people that they that applied, who they interviewed, and what happened, right? That's the only way you can really do this. So it, it can't be, like, not good data or scattered data. It has to be good data. So if you have all this, then you can create an algorithm. And so in this case, there was a company that created the algorithm. And so we and so not only do you have to have all this data, you have to have variance in the errors. Meaning, let's say I have 10 people that are making the judgments. If these 10 people are so aligned, such that they're constantly using the same criteria and applying that same criteria in the same exact way every time and there's no variance, then if I use an algorithm, all it's going to do is be more efficient about doing what those 10 people are doing. Yeah. And so it's going to replicate their bias. However, if those 10 people are, you know, have good days, bad days, there's a lot of variance within them, a lot of variance between them, that's golden, right? Now I give you, I give it the algorithm, I give it the past data, now it creates its own algorithm. Turns out that if you have the algorithm choose who to interview versus humans, choose who to interview and the interviewer doesn't know. Turns out the algorithm, in this case of this one company, um, does do a better job of picking who's going to do better in the interview, who's going to be more likely to accept the offer, and there was a slight performance boost in the first six months. They did perform better. So I think there's potential. So I don't want to say that, that this is a done deal, it's perfect. Uh, obviously, we need more test cases, but I think there's real potential, particularly given that in hiring decisions, it's the most noisy, like in real life. What's interesting about the, the, the choice, I, the, the, the entire concept of choice and having more choice is, ingra is so ingrained in American society and uh, European society as well, I, th I think, to a greater or lesser extent. But there must be other societies where it's less so. Do you, do you find that culturally? Do you find different reactions to your research as you travel around? You know, so in chapter two of my book, I talk about cultural differences in choice. And um, clearly the point at which people consider it to be too much varies from culture to culture. And Americans seem to be particularly good at being trained to sort of spot the difference between amongst between a bunch of choices that are basically the same, right? very trivial differences. Um, that being said, I would say the biggest export and import around the globe really is choices and messaging about choices. Right? And ads and things like that. So, and I think that's true no matter where you go now. 
I mean, you'll see just as many brands when you go to a, you know, place in right. China yeah, so, than in the U.S. <laughs> so, so choice is a, an international business, effectively. Yeah, I think where you are seeing debate has much more to do with how we run our politics, right? So that um, increasingly debate around do we want to localize or continue to be globalized? Uh, so a la Brexit, a la Trump. Do we want to embrace? I mean, capitalism seems to have been embraced without much debate or conflict. Um, government systems around communism versus democracy, even though communism as a whole died. I think the notion of centralized planning, uh, decisions trying to come from the top um, versus a kind of group decision-making process a la democracy. For some reason, we're very down on that at the moment. Well, perhaps that's because we've been coming to the wrong decisions. I think what's really happening, though, is that there's a few things happening around that. First, in the old days, the unsaid benefit of leaders, whether it was a corporate leader, whether it was a political leader, was that the leader trusted that relevant information bits would be at the top and that it was in the leader's control to disseminate however he or she thought fit. And that anything that didn't surface up to the top was probably not that important. I think what's happened now is that there's an increasing awareness on the part of both leaders and people on the ground that information is not going from the bottom up or top down, but that it's chaotic and they don't know what that map looks like. They just know that it's going in all different kinds of pockets and in different directions. So I think what you're seeing with the whole desire for a Trump, desire for Brexit, even though we talk about it as kind of like, let's get rid of the foreigners, I think what is really going on here is this desire to have leadership feel more centralized because that makes people feel more in control. I think that's one thing going on. I think the other thing going on is that in the old days, I as an individual was much more confident and capable of being able to describe myself to you. I could say to you, Stuart, well, I'm an Indian American female from New York, and that would mean something. I would feel confident in that. You would feel confident in knowing how to categorize me or at least how to talk to me or interpret me. Okay. Today that's not true because I, Sheena, am, I don't even know how to describe myself. Do I endorse Indian values? Well, which Indian values? Do I endorse being an American? Well, it depends what kind of America. Am I a female? Well, I don't know, there's a lot of discussion around that. Am I 
Do I want to have children? How would I want to have children? What career am I going to stick to? How many times am I going to change that? Do I want to be certain about saying, you know, look, I'm a professor. Okay? You know, do you see how every portion of my identity now is up for consideration and it's variable, it's moving. Even my social capital is mixed, it's diverse. And that's a good thing because it makes me more aware of different ideas, different ways of doing things. So perhaps it makes me more creative, it makes me more thoughtful, but at the same time, it makes it hard for me to understand myself as a coherent whole, and it makes it hard for other people to understand me as a coherent whole. And how are you at decision-making? I think there's a, I mean, there's the cliche that uh, there's the plumbers who have boilers and that don't work and pipes that leak. And I've always encountered uh, professors from business school, the expert on change, who, who, who's, who hasn't experienced change in his life for 40 years, or the expert <laughs> on leadership who has no interest or pra in, in the practice of leadership, or the, the marketing guy who doesn't have a website. How do these, you must find these ideas around choice impinging or affecting your own decisions in life. I would say, so when you asked me the question earlier, did, did choice choose you or did you cho choose choice? And I think the reason why I said both is that, uh, I mean, I, I am a blind Indian American and female, and I do think that choice very much was always ever present in my own life. Um, and so, and still is, it's a, it's a constant everyday dilemma. I'm not going to say that I made all the best choices, but it's something that I have to constantly grapple with. And so that's probably why I constantly go back and, and study it. So there's always that, for better and for worse, that personal professional line is always blurred. But one of the things that I often say to my PhD students is the great thing about my job is I'm never working because whatever it is that I'm interested in at learning at the time, I just turn it into a study. And that was true whether I was interested in learning how to, learning about fashion. That was true whether I was interested in learning about, you know, grocery stores. It's true about whether I wanted to learn about retirement savings, you know, dating. I mean, all the topics that I ended up doing studies on. <laughs> so, But usually academic work concludes that more research is necessary. <laughs> well, the reason why I am teaming up with a poet on the authenticity complex is I don't think we as social scientists can get it. I don't think we can fully articulate it. I think we'll be left feeling slighted um, and it won't be deep enough if we stick to just going with social science. That was actually the reason why I decided to go with a, a poet. I do think there's a lot more nuance going on, which I just can't capture in any one study. So what, what does success look like for you? In, in, in my life or in, 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 your, in your career? And should you separate your career from your life? Um, I think if I had to make three words. I would want people to remember 
I would want to know that I taught people how to make choices better, how to change their lives in some way. I think that's probably what's always that's that was what always affected me when I was own, when I was a kid because they, you know it wasn't clear what choices I was going to have. When I became, as I was trying to figure out what I was going to choose, and then I ultimately ended up at Stanford. I kind of made that decision pretty quickly that I wanted, not that I used the word choice, but I wanted to figure out how to uh, motivate people so that we wouldn't have as much human waste in the world. Because I do feel that people end up doing things that are not good for them. So the way I kind of talk about it in talks that I'll say is the, the reason why we need to stand, study choice is so that we can get more out of this thing called choice. I think in some cases we have to learn to interpret situations as offering us choices and sometimes we have to learn there is no choice. You have to accept the constraints. So um, I suppose uh, one of the things that I also believe strongly in is the fact that you know we all have limitations and, and one of the big struggles we all make over the course of our life is we have to figure out how to disentangle our perceived limitations from our true limitations, right? Now, in, in my case, it was much more vivid or salient, but I think it's true of everybody, which is that, it, you know, like in my case, you know, people tried to pigeonhole me, well, this is what a blind person can do or can't do. And so the, the options would appear very stilted. But I think that's true of everybody. They're constantly trying to figure out what their perceived and true limitations are. How far can I go? At what point is this a real limitation? And you stop and you choose the best from what you've got. Yeah. On that note, Sheena, Sheena Iyengar, thank mm-hmm. you very much. Thank you. This is a Thinkers 50 podcast brought to you in partnership with the Brightline Initiative, bridging the gap between strategy design and delivery.